So we just finished up a couple weeks ago a series of sermons out of Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. And in that psalm, we cast a vision for the kind of church we want to be, really the kind of person that you can become. And I think it's only proper then, after casting a vision of the kind of people we want to become, that we now go sit and walk with the person we want to look like. That's Jesus. So we're going to take several weeks now to walk with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. So we're starting a sermon series that I'm calling the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> Thought long and hard. Some have called me creative. I think this might be the height of my creativity. The Gospel of Mark. We're going to walk through this Gospel learning from Jesus. And we're going to start with Mark chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I'm in the new NIV, the 2011 NIV. Mark chapter 1, we'll start with verse 1. We'll walk through the first 13 verses. And that will begin our journey here through this gospel. Verse 1 here, we read the beginning of the good news. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. The Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people from Jerusalem went out to, to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of cam camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with whom, with you, I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Well, there's a lot going on to start the Gospel of Mark. I want to take those 13 verses and I want to boil them down to three words. Three words that I see in those 13 verses. I want to take a look at Messiah, wilderness, and stoop. I think those three words have a lot to say not only about those 13 verses, but they're going to have a lot to say about your life, the one you're living right now, the only life you have, everyday life right where you find yourself. I think those three words have something to say to us. So let's take Messiah. We hit Messiah just a few words into the gospel. We see the word Messiah. There's a couple things I notice about Messiah. So when I see that word, a couple things are popping for me. Number one, I'm noticing that Mark is coming out of the gate with a declaration. That this guy is the anointed one. He's son of God. Now, in our day, there might be a lot of debate about that. Who is this Jesus? Was he really God in flesh? Was he really the anointed one? Really Messiah? Or was he just a good teacher? We would have a lot of questions about who this guy is. And yet Mark is not interested 
in the debate about who Jesus is, he simply introduces Jesus with a declaration that he is Messiah, Son of God. No debate. Right out of the gate, he launches with a declaration. And throughout the gospel, so as we walk with Jesus, we're going to see people debating the identity of Jesus. Some are going to follow him. Some are going to try to kill him. And some are just going to be really confused about who he is. Some of those will be the people closest to Jesus. But Messiah is going to be a flashpoint for a lot of people throughout the Gospel of Mark. The second thing I'm noticing here is that Messiah is pulling an Old Testament concept forward. The idea that there would be an anointed one, someone coming for Israel, is rooted in the Old Testament. For centuries, Israel was hoping for somebody to come and bring salvation to them. If you know the story of Israel, God chooses these people, and he gives a promise to these people that one day this people would bless all people, and someone would come through them that would give the world salvation. And yet Israel jacks up their history Time after time after time. God blesses them, they rebel. God blesses them, they rebel. This is the story of Israel. And yet along the way, God keeps promising that someone was coming that would fix the world. So when you see that word Messiah, you got to think about those promises. And there's a lot of them. But let me just pick two that come to mind. In Deuteronomy... Chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, Moses is giving his last will and testament to the Israelites before they go into the promised land, and he has this to tell the Israelites about someone coming one day. He says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. The Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Now, part of our passage this morning in those 13 verses is the baptism of Jesus. And he comes out of the water, and the father says to the son, I am pleased with you. This is my son. I'm well pleased with you. Well, when Matthew writes, the Gospel of Matthew writes that account, there are three extra words added to what the Father says. And he says, listen to him. At the transfiguration, when we get up to Mark, later in Mark, Jesus is transfigured. He like becomes like a light bulb in front of the, the disciples, a few of the disciples. And the Father again declares his favor over the Son. And there he also says, Listen to him. And throughout the Gospel of Mark and throughout all the Gospels, you see obedience as a key factor in how one walks with this Messiah. Will you listen or will you not listen? And so we want to pay attention to that as we read and walk with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. But a day was coming when a prophet from God would come and everyone would be held to account for how well they listened to him. Jesus is that prophet. Also reminds me later, years, years later, when the prophet Isaiah declares that someone's coming. Now, typically we hear these verses at Christmas time. I want you to hear them afresh in summertime. 
Here's what Isaiah declared. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I have no doubt these verses from Isaiah were sitting in the heart and the hopes of the people of Israel as they were being oppressed by the Roman Empire there in the first century. And so here we, here we have a herald, John the Baptist, declaring that that one is coming. I'm sure there were some that thought, finally, finally, the Son has come, and he will declare that kind of government established on earth. So when you read the word Messiah... There's a lot going on in that Hebrew word for anointed one. Now let's take the word wilderness. Wilderness. John the Baptist comes, comes preaching in the wilderness. Now that's not where I would expect someone establishing a ministry of influence to be coming, to be starting his ministry and to stay preaching. I'd expect someone of that kind of influence to be preaching in centers of power. I'd expect them, John would have started in Jerusalem, maybe Antioch. Maybe he would have been educated in Alexandria in Egypt and then come up into Judea. But who in the world starts a ministry of influence in the backwoods of the Judean desert? Well, God does things like that. God is often working on the margins of society and with people you wouldn't expect God to be with. We often find God doing those kind of things. If you'll notice that when Jesus came to be baptized, you know, you remember where we read Jesus is coming from? He's coming from Nazareth. That's like a no-name town. Nazareth didn't have a lot of acclaim in that day. They weren't an economic hub. They weren't a center of commerce. They weren't a pillar of political power. Nazareth was just a small town in the backwoods of Judea. And here comes Jesus from this small town. God is often working in the backwoods, on the margins of society where we would never expect him. Which is interesting because later in the Gospel of Mark, you know what we're going to find? We're going to find Jesus among people that the religious leaders said you should never associate with. We'll read things like this. Mark chapter 2, verse 15 through 16, we read this about Jesus. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. And his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What is Jesus doing in the wilderness with these people on the margins of society? That's because Jesus, as we will find, is often walking with, teaching, and living among those on the outside. On the outside. The people we wouldn't want to really be hanging out with. But Jesus does. 
We need to keep that in mind as we read through the Gospel of Mark. And let's take that last word. So we've gone through Messiah. We've gone through wilderness. Take the word stoop now. So it was the closest thing I could get out of the passage that represents humility. To stoop is to bend down, to like bend, like to uh, go underneath, to stoop. And, he, and John the Baptist, in the context of the word, John the Baptist says that he's not even worthy to stoop down to untie his sandals. That is the one coming. So this represents John the Baptist's humility. Now, I know typically we're like, well, this is kind of the thing John the Baptist is supposed to say, right? Like, if you've been in church for a long time, like, that's the thing you expect John the Baptist to say. He was supposed to be humble and supposed to be holy. He was Jesus' herald. But think with me for a second. This guy was preaching in the wilderness, in the backwoods of the desert, and he has people from the economic center of Palestine coming to him and following him. How well would you handle crowds of people telling you how good you are? Some of us can't even handle a hundred likes on Facebook, much less a crowd of people around you telling you how good you are, willing to do whatever you say. I tend to think that humility in the context of John the Baptist wasn't a given, but I think he was the kind of person that would be humble in the midst of popularity and praise. And so I see humility as a key part of the story we will watch play out in the Gospel of Mark. I also see humility, this stooping happening with another group of people. All those people coming, confessing their sins and being baptized. I see a lot of humility there. And I imagine these just weren't the nobodies in Jerusalem or in the other small towns in Palestine that were coming getting baptized. I imagine there were some wealthy men and women who came and were baptized. Some who recognized that they needed help. And John was preaching that something was on the horizon. One, there was one coming who would bring salvation. And these people understood that they were pretty jacked up. And they needed help. And so they submitted to this sign of humility, this baptism. So John's baptism was a sign of submission. It was a sign of trusting God. And with that trust came forgiveness of sins. And so we then see Jesus coming on the scene, who for me is the third person I see stooping in the passage. I see John the Baptist. I see all of these people, this crowd being baptized. And then I see Jesus. Now, Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to do what no other human being ever did and never and ever could do. And so he is going to go through this sign of submission. Now, most people, when they submit to God, they got to repent, turn from their wicked behavior, their rebellion and then move forward in their submission. Jesus submitted but had no sin to repent from. But he still needed to move into, participate in this sign that God had ordained of submission. And that started Jesus into a ministry of submission from that day forward. 
Take a look. I just wanted to write this sentence out, so I made it as clear as possible. After his baptism, Jesus continued walking the path of submission and humility all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. It reminds me of something that Paul wrote years later in the book of Philippians. He describes this very scene. I think Jesus' baptism had something to do with this, was part of this journey. Here's what Paul wrote. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. Who, this is Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility. Humility. And as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, we will see that theme play out over and over in the life of Jesus and the life of those who follow him. Now, with that said, Messiah, wilderness, stoop, those three words I think are summarizing these 13 verses and they set us up for what's coming in the Gospel of Mark. Let me, for a minute, take a detour. There's some other things going on in this passage, but they really don't fit my template. So I'm going to call them theological side notes. Two things I'm seeing in this passage that I at least want to make mention of so we can do some good Bible study. I see the Trinity in these verses. I also see the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So let's take them on uh, in that order quickly. The Trinity. In this passage, you see the Trinity on display. You see the Son being baptized, the Father declaring words from heaven as the Spirit descends on him. You know what that passage does not tell us? That passage does not tell us how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coexist three in one from eternity in their nature. That passage simply tells us how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to one another in a community of love and humility. So here's what I want to say about the Trinity. And for those of you that want to always figure out the mystery found in Scripture, I'm going to make you mad. I'm going to make you mad. Here it is. The Bible's not interested in explaining how God, who is three in one, exists in his nature from eternity. We're just going to call that a mystery. Here's what the Bible is interested in. It explains how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate and work together to bring salvation to the world. I don't know how God is three in one. I don't know how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity have always existed. But I know that when Jesus was baptized, God in flesh, the Son, did something so the Father declared his praise over him as the Spirit descended on him, and they worked in perfect unity to set in motion this story of salvation that would lead to the cross, a resurrection, and an ascension, and a declaration of good news throughout the world. I know that. Everything else, I don't have it all figured out. That's what I want to say about the Trinity in that passage. Now, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this one will get us in a lot of trouble, won't it? Because different traditions of of Christian history, Christian thought, will say a lot of different things about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some traditions would say that unless you speak in tongues, you didn't get a baptism of the Holy Spirit and you're not saved. John says that his baptism was of water, but Jesus is going to bring a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is often used to say you must have some type of manifestation of a spiritual gift. Well, here's, here's what I don't know. 
I don't know exactly what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. I can make a lot of inferences, and I could show you a lot of different Bible passages, but I could also show you a scholar for every view that you would have to argue that their view is right, and they'll all use the Bible. And I've looked at all of these views, many of them, not all of them. I've looked at many of them in depth. And I'm just telling you, that's a confusing passage of Scripture. But I'm going I'm to give you what I think is the best guess at what John is pointing to. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. Some of them are convicted. They want to know, what are they supposed to do? Peter says this. He says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I know that John the Baptist wasn't promising the gift, the indwelling, the fullness of the Holy Spirit inside of them. And here, all of a sudden, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we have the promise of the indwelling gift of the Spirit. I don't think it's too far-fetched to call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But please understand, if you are reading along in the Gospel of Mark and you find places where you say, wow, that's confusing, I want you to understand you're not alone. And there have been many for hundreds of years within the Christian faith who have struggled with some of these passages. So these are what I call my theological side notes for the day. Let's get back to some application now, okay? So we're gonna, I want to ask some questions. So like I want to take everything we just did and just like ask some questions. And, and you can feel uncomfortable uh, as much as you want with these questions, okay? Would you have humbled yourself and been baptized by John? Would you have repented and confessed your sins? Now I know the church answer, I get it. Everyone would have. We would have all followed John the Baptist. Jesus would have come on the scene. We would have followed him. We would have had no problems. I get it. But like, if we were like, we weren't in church, and I, we were sitting over a meal, and you were enjoying yourself, what would you say? I imagine some of us have reputations to keep. We're not confessing sins. Who would do that? We're... We are men of influence, maybe women of influence. We don't do things like this. We don't let people put us down in water in front of other people while we tell other people all the bad things we've done. Really what this gets to is who do you think you are? Are you a good person that really doesn't need any change? Or are you in desperate need of God's help? Will you be driven to humility? And along our journey in the Gospel of Mark, I hope that each of us is put up against Jesus and we are confronted with our own wickedness. So maybe, just maybe, we might be humbled and find life. But we've got to ask that question. So use your imagination and imagine, what would you have done in that wilderness? Because some of us, if we're honest... We would have never left Jerusalem to go see the crazy dude out in the desert preaching about a prophet coming who would change the world. Because I know I wouldn't have. And so Jesus has to keep working on my heart about this. Let's go, let's go with some questions that are related uh, to, to the wilderness. Are you ignoring God's voice in the wilderness? Now this wilderness can be a lot of different things for you. Some of you are facing health concerns that are putting you in a very difficult position. And you may have already referred to that sickness as your wilderness. And you're just really mad about it. God has a way of working in your wilderness where he doesn't work anywhere else. 
God will work in your sickness in ways that he wouldn't work anywhere else in your life. You might be at a job you really don't like. And some of you might need to leave that job because of the conditions, the, the, the staff conditions of that job. But some of you need to stay in that job, live in your wilderness, so that you can experience God in a fresh way, a way that you couldn't get any other way. And some of us have a wilderness that we have created on our own. See, I like hanging out with people that look like me, sound like me, smell like me, talk like me. I like those people. I have to ask myself, is God working among people that don't look like me and don't make as much money as me or may struggle with crimes that I don't struggle with? Is God working among people that I think he has abandoned? Really got to start to ask, have I created my own wilderness? Could God be working among people that you have shunned? Or you make fun of? Or you laugh at? Or you have contempt for? I think this may be something we all struggle with. Because we all like being around people that we look like and sound like, and can get along with. But Jesus won't let us get by with that, because Jesus is working on the margins of society even today. And we just got to start thinking about what that might mean for our life. Now, I'm not going to play that out to its logical conclusion for you, because I'm not living your life. But I know God is moving in the lives of people that you have put on the margins and it will be up to the Holy Spirit to begin to work on your heart on what that might look like. But whatever your wilderness, God just might be speaking. You might want to go out there and check it out. Let's take this last, this last one about Jesus. What does your life, not your words, your life, I can talk with the best of them. I'm talking about your life. What does your life say about Jesus? Is he a confusing teacher? Is he just some dude who says you have to go to church? That's a serious one. You know how many people see Jesus as just that guy that said you had to go to church? If that's your Jesus, no wonder he's not changing much inside of you. Because that's not Jesus. Or is he Messiah, the Son of God? I mean, you just gotta, I just, I'm asking this question because along our journey as we walk with Jesus, you're going to get confronted with who Jesus is. And you might have a very low, tiny, box-size view of Jesus. And I hope that we can break that. Wherever we have limited him, may we see his full glory, his full compassion, the full weight of his holiness... May we see it as we walk with him, as we learn from him. We've got to talk about this, though. What does your life say about Jesus? I know what your words can say. What does your life say? So here's a next step. Let's end with a next step. This is an easy one. It's an easy one. Read Mark 1, 1 through 13 this week. Just reread it. Reread it. And you might just ask God to give you some help as you read it. See what God will do there. I have no idea what that will look like for you. But I trust that the scriptures can do something inside of you when you do this.
Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for our time studying your word. Change us from the inside out. May we look more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that I'm asking this as humbly as I know, as I am conscious of right now. We ask it in his name. And together we can say, Amen.